As we come to consider God's word, let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Open our minds to understand and to accept the truth of your word. Stimulate our wills to apply your word in our lives. Amen. One of the elders in my first parish once said to me, you know, Keith, a sermon that was not worth repeating was not worth being preached the first time. And a few years ago, I developed a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to suggest to you that a sermon series not worth repeating was not worth being preached the first time. So when Philip asked me to take today's service, I thought I would use the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now I know that Philip has done this uh, not so long ago, was before I arrived here, so it was a few years ago. But I think that what I will share with you today will add to what he had to say and expand your understanding of this most instructional uh, portion of Scripture. Now, for a few minutes, I'd like to tell you how I arrived at the position I have regarding Matthew's Gospel and subsequently the Sermon on the Mount. I turned to the various commentaries on Matthew to read their statements about the Sermon on the Mount and I was disappointed to read statements like this. It would seem most probable that in these chapters Matthew is not recording a single discourse delivered on one occasion but is assembling in an orderly form small groups of sayings of Jesus about discipleships given at various times during his ministry. And another one was this. Pious and modest readers ought to be satisfied with having a brief summary of the doctrine of Christ placed before their eyes, collected out of his many and various discourses. So some commentators don't regard what we call the Sermon on the Mount as one single presentation. They regard it as a bit from here, a bit from there, a bit from there, right? No. I found those comments very unedifying and so I began my own search. I read again the whole Gospel. Now that's an interesting experience. I thoroughly recommend it to you. I read again the whole gospel and as I read, three portions of the gospel stood out to me as pivotal verses or changing points in the narrative. And they are these from Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then from chapter 9, verses 36 to 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his vineyard. And uh, in selecting those verses uh, to be pivotal ones, I was influenced by Jesus' statement in his, of his mission, which Luke records for us when he said, For the Son of Man will come to seek and to save the lost. And the third pivotal verse for me was in Matthew 16, verse 21, where we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And these three scripture portions became to me the beginning of new sections in the structure of the gospel. And so as a result, I have divided the Gospel of Matthew into five major sections. First part, where Jesus is introduced from chapter 1, verse 1, through to verse 26 of chapter 4. The second portion that I've labelled the Kingdom of Heaven from uh, Matthew 5, verse 1, through to 9.34. Then the third section, Seeking the Lost, chapter 9.35 through to 16.12. Fourth section, Saving the Lost, 16.13 through to 28.15. And then the fifth section that I've labelled, Postscript, 28.16 to 20. So then you can see that the Sermon on the Mount comes under the division that I've labelled the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, as I read these three chapters of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, I realised that there is the same structure to Jesus' sermon, the same structure that I was taught at Theological College for preparing a sermon, the same one that I've been using for the last 40-plus years. You might notice it's the same structure that Philip uses. It's a very good structure. And in it we see an introduction. The verses that June read, 5, 1 to 12. A proposition, 5, 13 to 16. Another section of the first major point that I've labelled understanding the law, chapter 5, 17 through to verse 48. Second major point, walking the walk, chapter 6, verse 1 through to 7, verse 6. A third major point that I've labelled practical matters, 7, 7 through to verse 23. And then a conclusion, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Now other people have come up with different structures. You might like to take the time instead of watching the football this afternoon to uh, read through those three chapters of that sermon and derive your own structure. But whatever we do, how are we or how are we going to derive meaning from Jesus' sermon?
And the key lies in verses 13 and 14 that we didn't read today of chapter 1, where Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then from verse 1, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and here's the key thing, he began to teach them. Now we see in these couple of uh, verses two very important issues. Firstly, Jesus holds his disciples in very high regard. And the second thing, he begins to train them. Now that word teach, he began to teach them as we read, also has the meaning of give an instruction to or give uh, or, or training. Jesus regards his disciples not as a motley mob. You know, there were fishermen, there were hotheads, there was a tax collector, there was a thief and a betrayer, and just other ordinary people. A motley mob, we could say. Jesus doesn't regard them as a motley mob, but he regards them as changed people. The way they're described, you and I are described in other portions of the scripture. He regards them as a new creation. He regards them as not in the kingdom of darkness, but as in the kingdom of light. He regards them not in the kingdom of death, but in the kingdom of life. He regards them as Peter describes as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, the people of God, those who have received mercy. And as Paul describes them later on, they are citizens of heaven. Now Jesus doesn't use any of these descriptors, but his words are, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Don't they mean the same thing? But, and you know there's always a but, isn't there? But it may be how Jesus describes them or Jesus thinks of them, but their present reality does not reflect their new status. Their lives don't measure up. They need to be transformed. They need to be trained. And that's what Jesus sets out to begin. They came to him, he sat down, and he began to teach them, or he began to instruct them, or he began to train them. And so what I'm proposing for you today is this that Jesus' aim for his disciples is that they be fully trained as citizens of heaven. Jesus' aim for his disciples is that they be fully trained as citizens of heaven. So uh, let's see 
how he goes about doing it. Now, when Jesus starts off, he doesn't use the words that a coach would use to the newest members of his team after a draft. He doesn't use the words that an instructor would use to the newest batch of recruits in the army. They would start with words like, no longer are you an amateur footballer. Now you are a professional one. Start to think like one. Or the instructor in the army would say to the new recruits, no longer are you a civilian. You are now a soldier. Start to think like one. Now Jesus doesn't use those words, but he does assume their changed status. And uh, he begins their transformation, he begins their training as citizens uh, from not being citizens of this world to being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He implements and puts it into practice what Paul will later give as an instruction. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so you can just imagine these disciples standing around or sitting there on the hillside in front of Jesus and Jesus starts to say, blessed are, and he gives the whole list. You can see their mouths dropping open. Jesus begins their transformation by addressing what they think by addressing the ideas, the philosophies, the mores of the world around them. He challenges their preconceptions of life. He challenges their preconception, their beliefs of what they think everybody believes. And he challenges these things with God's point of view, the beliefs, the views of the kingdom of heaven. Think about what Jesus says and think about what the world might say. Doesn't the world teach that blessed are those who say nothing will stop me from achieving what I want for they shall receive greatness? I use those words because they're on an ad that we see on TV fairly frequently. It's implied that getting what you want is a great thing. Now, Jesus counters this with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world, everybody says, blessed are those who promote ungodliness in the world, for they will gain great popularity. And I had in mind as I wrote that down, our Prime Minister Uh, going to the Mardi Gras in Sydney. Jesus counters this belief with, blessed are those who mourn over unrighteousness, for they will be comforted. And again, the world would say, blessed are those who are arrogant and proud, for they shall be master of many. Jesus counters this belief with, 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, the world will say, Blessed are those who stretch the truth, for they shall be heads of corporations or leaders of nations. Jesus counters this belief with, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And you can work your way through the rest of them. So Jesus is instructing his disciples as he goes through this list of those that heaven regards as blessed. He's instructing his disciples, he's saying to them in effect, Stop thinking as those outside of the kingdom of heaven and be transformed with renewal of your minds and think as citizens of heaven. And the second thing, it's almost a corollary. Well, it is a corollary of this instruction. Jesus says to his disciples, now that you're citizens of heaven, stop listening to the ideas, the philosophies and the mores of the world around you or of those who aren't in the kingdom of heaven. Stop listening to those things. Those things, he says, are speculation at best and outright lies at worst. You are to have only one instructor, me, he says. And six times in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 5, Jesus uses the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, six times he says that. If a football team is to uh, achieve the goal of winning the flag at the end of the season, each and every player must listen to the coach and so interpret what he knows in the light of the coach's instructions (coughs) and put into effect the coach's instructions. It's the same for the kingdom of heaven. If the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to prove that they are in fact that, then they must listen to the coach, who is Jesus. And they must change their thinking. And they have to interpret what they know in the light of the coach's instructions. For example... Jesus expands, doesn't he, on the concept of what the law teaches. First one he says is, you have heard it said you shall not murder. But I say to you, and what does he do? He lists out, he says, even if you're angry with your brother without cause, you've broken this commandment. So he reveals to us in this that it's not just murder that is condemned but it's all those things that could possibly lead up to it. Anger, 
road rage, anything else that could involve a person in killing somebody else unlawfully. And by extension, it also includes all of those things that we do as a positive thing to promote life. For example, in the Old Testament, they were told, build a parapet on the roof of your house so that people don't fall over the edge because they had flat roof houses. In modern Australia, a similar sort of principle is put a fence around your swimming pool. They are the measures we take to keep that commandment. So it's not just a prohibition against murder, but it's a prohibition against all those things that lead to unrighteous killing and it's an exhortation to do all the positive things that promote life. So, in the kingdom of heaven, if we're going to prove to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we've got to listen to the coach, change our thinking from the ways of the world to the ways of the kingdom of heaven, interpret what we know in the light of the coach's instructions and put into effect what the coach has said. So Jesus has expectations, doesn't he? He expects people not only to listen... Or as James says, be not only doers, uh, not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Jesus puts it this way: Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. And he continues, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus' expectation is that the citizens of heaven will put into practice what he has said What a challenge, not only to the disciples of his time, but to all of his disciples down through the ages until he comes back. So what? I um, marvel at this. Here we see one of the great mysteries of Christianity that God chooses to involve people in their development. Remember, he created us in his image. He wants people to voluntarily live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while we live here on earth, this side of glory. You know, he doesn't snap his fingers and make us perfect right away, does he? 
He encourages us, he stimulates us, the Holy Spirit works in us, teaching us the truth of his laws, teaching us the way he wants us to live, and he encourages us to put it into practice. That's fabulous, isn't it? He doesn't want us to be automatons. He wants us to voluntarily live the way he wants us to. I've only got three points in the so what. The second so what is Jesus challenges us to set aside the ideas, the philosophies and the mores of our society and to not allow them to inform our thinking, our beliefs or our practices. Or as J.B. Philip interprets from Romans 12, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. It says to us, fight against it. Don't accept, don't believe, don't allow what the world teaches to be your guide or teacher. And he says further, adopt the ideas, the philosophies and the mores of the kingdom of heaven so that we live as citizens of heaven right now, here on earth, this side of glory. So we adopt the ideas, the philosophies, the mores of the kingdom of heaven and we put them into practice as best we can while we live here. Why do I say as best we can? Because we're never going to do them perfectly, are we? Each one of us at times is going to cry out like Paul did. What was Paul's complaint? A wretched man that I am. I know the way God wants me to live, but what do I do? The opposite. Each one of us can testify to that as we fall short. But that doesn't stop us or shouldn't stop us from aiming for the standard that God wants. So we put into practice as best we can Jesus' teachings, those ideas, the philosophies, the mores of the kingdom of heaven. Not so that we will gain God's approval, not because we're hoping to do enough good stuff that God says, come on into heaven, because we know what? We'll never do enough good stuff. It's not possible. But we aim to do it because we are, in fact, citizens of heaven and we want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So my third so what is a warning. It's a warning. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Who amongst Jesus' disciples lost his saltiness? Wasn't it Judas? Judas was one of those disciples who received the training that Jesus was giving Judas' problem was that he allowed the, or, or he I, uh, adhered to the ideas, the philosophies, and the mores of this world. He refused to accept uh, 
and to adopt Jesus' training, thus proving he didn't belong in the kingdom of heaven and wasn't, in fact, a citizen of of heaven. Judas is a warning to us concerning the judgment that awaits all who reject Jesus and his ways. So we in the church, we echo Paul's exhortation when he writes, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the warning is, don't ignore, don't disbelieve, don't reject what Jesus has to say. It's good that we've been told all scripture, including the Sermon on the Mount, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that is, the citizen of heaven, may be competent, equipped for every good work. So I look forward to delving further with you into Jesus' great sermon when Philip invites me again to step into the pulpit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these words that Jesus spoke so long ago. Thank you that he is the great coach for those who are citizens of heaven. Lord, so often we do allow the philosophies and the ideas, the mores of the world around us to influence us. Help us to always think as citizens of heaven. Lord, so often we want to listen to other voices. We don't want to listen to what the coach says. Lord, we fail so often to do this and so we ask your forgiveness. Lord, so often we disobey, not implementing the things that Jesus has taught us to do. And once again, we confess this before you. We ask, Lord, that firstly you don't give up on us, but that you continue the work that our coach has begun in us, changing us to be more and more like him, so that on the great day when he returns, he will welcome us and say to us, come with me to the kingdom that you have prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. We ask, Lord God, that in all our lives we might prove to be, to ourselves, to those around us, that we might prove to be worthy citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's sing a fabulous hymn, a great hymn of faith, one you all know. 584, The Lord's My Shepherd. <laughs>